This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 4 An Evening in Uncle Tom's Cabin. The cabin of Uncle Tom was a small log building close adjoining to the house, as the negro par excellence designates his master's dwelling. In front it had a neat garden patch where, every summer, strawberries, raspberries, and a variety of fruits and vegetables flourished under careful tending. The whole front of it was covered by a large scarlet bignonia and a native multiflora rose, which, in twisting and interlacing, left scarce a vestige of the rough logs to be seen. Here also in summer various brilliant annuals, such as marigolds, petunias, four o'clocks, found an indulgent corner in which to unfold their splendors, and were the delight and pride of Aunt Chloe's heart. Let us enter the dwelling. The evening meal at the house is over, and Aunt Chloe, who presided over its preparations as head cook, has left to inferior officers in the kitchen the business of clearing away and washing dishes, and come out into her own snug territories, to get her old man's supper. Therefore doubt not that it is her you see by the fire, presiding with anxious interest over certain frizzling items in a stew-pan, and anon, with grave consideration, lifting the cover of a bake-kettle, from whence steam forth indubitable intimations of something good. A round, black, shining face is hers, so glossy as to suggest the idea that she might have been washed over with white of eggs, like one of her own tea-rusks. Her whole plump countenance beams with satisfaction and contentment from under her well-starched checked turban, bearing on it, however, if we must confess it, a little of that tinge of self-consciousness which becomes the first cook of the neighborhood, as Aunt Chloe was universally held and acknowledged to be. A cook she certainly was, in the very bone and center of her soul. Not a chicken or turkey or duck in the barnyard but looked grave when they saw her approaching, and seemed evidently to be reflecting on their latter end, and certain it was that she was always meditating on trussing, stuffing, and roasting, to a degree that was calculated to inspire terror in any reflecting fowl living. Her corn-cake, in all its varieties of hoe-cake, dodgers, muffins, and other species too numerous to mention, was a sublime mystery to all less practised compounders, and she would shake her fat sides with honest pride and merriment, as she would narrate the fruitless efforts that one and another of her compeers had made to attain to her elevation. The arrival of company at the house, the arranging of dinners and suppers in style, awoke all the energies of her soul, and no sight was more welcome to her than a pile of travelling trunks launched on the veranda, for then she foresaw fresh efforts and fresh triumphs. Just at present, however, Aunt Chloe is looking into the bake-pan, in which congenial operation we shall leave her till we finish our picture of the cottage. In one corner of it stood a bed, covered neatly with a snowy spread, and by the side of it was a piece of carpeting of some considerable size. On this piece of carpeting Aunt Chloe took her stand, as being decidedly in the upper walks of life, and it, and the bed by which it lay, and the whole corner, in fact, 
were treated with distinguished consideration, and made, so far as possible, sacred from the marauding inroads and desecrations of little folks. In fact, that corner was the drawing-room of the establishment. In the other corner was a bed of much humbler pretensions, and evidently designed for use. The wall over the fireplace was adorned with some very brilliant scriptural prints, and a portrait of General Washington, drawn and colored in a manner which would certainly have astonished that hero, if ever he happened to meet with its like. On a rough bench in the corner, a couple of woolly-headed boys, with glistening black eyes and fat shining cheeks, were busy in superintending the first walking operations of the baby, which, as is usually the case, consisted in getting up on its feet, balancing a moment, and then tumbling down, each successive failure being violently cheered as something decidedly clever. A table, somewhat rheumatic in its limbs, was drawn out in front of the fire, and covered with a cloth, displaying cups and saucers of a decidedly brilliant pattern, with other symptoms of an approaching meal. At this table was seated Uncle Tom, Mr. Shelby's best hand, who, as he is to be the hero of our story, we must daguerreotype for our readers. He was a large, broad-chested, powerfully made man, of a full glossy black, and a face whose truly African features were characterized by an expression of grave and steady good sense, united with much kindliness and benevolence. There was something about his whole air self-respecting and dignified, yet united with a confiding and humble simplicity. He was very busy, at this moment, on a slate lying before him, on which he was carefully and slowly endeavouring to accomplish a copy of some letters, in which operation he was overlooked by young Master George, a smart, bright boy of thirteen, who appeared fully to realise the dignity of his position as instructor. "'Not that way, Uncle Tom, not that way,' said he, briskly, as Uncle Tom laboriously brought up the tail of his G the wrong side out. "'That makes a Q, you see.' "'La sakes, now, does it?' said Uncle Tom, looking with a respectful, admiring air, as his young teacher flourishingly scrawled Q's and G's innumerable for his edification. And then, taking the pencil in his big, heavy fingers, he patiently recommenced. "'How easy white folks allus does things,' said Aunt Chloe, pausing while she was greasing a griddle with a scrap of bacon on her fork, and regarding young Master George with pride. "'The way he can write now, and read, too, and then to come out here evenings and read his lessons to us, it's mighty interesting.' "'But, Aunt Chloe, I'm getting mighty hungry,' said George. "'Isn't that cake in the skillet almost done?' "'Most done, Master George,' said Aunt Chloe, lifting the lid and peeping in. Browning beautiful, a real lovely brown. Ah, uh, let me alone for that. Mrs. Let Sally try to make some cake t'other day, just to larn her. She said, Oh, go away, Mrs., said I. It really hurts my feelings now to see good vittles spout that our way. Cake rise all to one side, no shape at all, no more than my shoe, go away. And with this final expression of contempt for Sally's greenness, Aunt Chloe whipped the cover off the baked kettle and disclosed to view a neatly baked pound-cake, of which no city confectioner need to have been ashamed. This being evidently the central point of the entertainment, Aunt Chloe began now to bustle about earnestly in the supper department. "'Here you, Mose and Pete! Get out the way, you niggers! Get away, Meriky, honey! Mammy'll give her baby some fin by and by! Now, Massa George, you just take off dem books, 
and set down now with my old man, and I'll take up de sausages, and have de first griddle full of cakes on your plates in less than no time." "'They wanted me to come to dinner in the house,' said George. But I knew what was what too well for that, Aunt Chloe." "'So you did, so you did, honey,' said Aunt Chloe, heaping the smoking batter-cakes on his plate. "'You knowed your old auntie'd keep the best for you. Oh, let you alone for that. Go away!' And with that, Auntie gave George a nudge with her finger, designed to be immensely facetious, and turned again to her griddle with great briskness. "'Now for the cake,' said Massa George, when the activity of the griddle department had somewhat subsided, and with that the youngster flourished a large knife over the article in question. "'La, bless you, Massa George,' said Aunt Chloe, with earnestness, catching his arm. "'You wouldn't be for cutting it with that our great heavy knife. Smash all down, spile all the pretty rise of it. Here, I've got a thin old knife. I keeps sharp a purpose. Dar now, see? Comes apart light as a feather. Now, eat away. You won't get anything to beat that ar. "'Tom Lincoln says,' said George, speaking with his mouthful, "'that there Jinny is a better cook than you.' "'Dem Lincolns ain't much count, no way,' said Aunt Chloe, contemptuously. "'I mean, set alongside our folks. They spectable folks enough in a kinder plain way, but as to getting up anything in style, they don't begin to have a notion on it. Set Master Lincoln, now, alongside Master Shelby. Good Lord! And Mrs. Lincoln! Can she kinder sweep it into a room like my missus? So kinder splendid, you know. Oh, go away! Don't tell me nothing of them Lincolns!' and Aunt Chloe tossed her head, as one who hoped she did know something of the world. "'Well, though, I've heard you say,' said George, "'that Jinny was a pretty fair cook.' "'So I did,' said Aunt Chloe. "'I may say that. Good, plain, common cookin'. Jinny'll do. Make a good pone of bread. Bile taters far. Her corn-cakes isn't extra, not extra now. Jinny's corn-cakes isn't. But then they's far. But, lor, come to be hired branches, and what can she do? Why, she makes pies. Sartin she does. But what kind of crust? Can she make your real flecky paste, as melts in your mouth, and lies all up like a puff? Now, I went over thar when Miss Mary was gwine to be married, and Jinny she just showed me the, the wedding pies. Jinny and I is good friends, you know. I never said nothing. But go long, Master George. Why, I shouldn't sleep a wink for a week if I had a batch of pies like them are. Why, they want no count tall. I suppose Jinny thought they were ever so nice, said George. Thought so, didn't she? Thar she was, showin' em as innocent. You see, it's just here. Jinny don't know. Lord, the family ain't nothin'. She can't be spected to know. Tant no fault am. Oh, Master George, you doesn't know half your privileges in your family in bringin' up. Here Aunt Chloe sighed, and rolled up her eyes with emotion. "'I'm sure, Aunt Chloe, I understand. I—my pie and pudding privileges,' said George. "'Ask Tom Lincoln if I don't crow over him every time I meet him.' Aunt Chloe sat back in her chair, and indulged in a hearty guffaw of laughter at this witticism of young Masser's, laughing till the tears rolled down her black, shining cheeks, and varying the exercise with playfully slapping and poking Master Georgie and telling him to go away, and that he was a case, that he was fit to kill her, and that he sartin would kill her one of these days, and between each of these sanguinary predictions, going off into a laugh, each longer and stronger than the other, till George really began to think that he was a very dangerously witty fellow, 
and that it became him to be careful how he talked, as funny as he could. "'And so ye yelled, Tom, did ye? Oh, Lord, what young'uns will be up to? Ye crowed over, Tom. Oh, Lord! Massa George, if ye wouldn't make a horn bug laugh!' "'Yes,' said George. I says to him, "'Tom, you ought to see some of Aunt Chloe's pies. They're the right sort,' says I. Pity now Tom couldn't, said Aunt Chloe, on whose benevolent heart the idea of Tom's benighted condition seemed to make a strong impression. You ought to just ask him here to dinner some of these times, Master George, she added. It would look quite pretty of you. You know, Master George, you oughtn't to feel above nobody on count your privileges, cause all our privileges is given to us. We ought allus to remember that, said Aunt Chloe, looking quite serious. "'Well, I mean to ask Tom here some day next week,' said George. "'And you do your prettiest, Aunt Chloe, and we'll make him stare. Won't we make him eat so he won't get over it for a fortnight?' "'Yes, yes, certain,' said Uncle Chloe, delighted. "'You'll see, Lord, to think of some of our dinners. You mind dat our great chicken pie made when we gove to dinner to General Knox? I and Missus, we come pretty near quarrelling about dat our crust.' What does get into ladies sometimes, I don't know. But sometimes, when a body has the heaviest kind of sponsibility on em, as ye may say, uh, and is all kinder serious and taken up, they takes that our time to be hanging round and kinder interfering. Now, missus, she wanted me to do this way, and she wanted me to do that way, and finally I got kinder sarcy and says, Now, missus, do just look at them beautiful white hands o' yourn, with long fingers and all them sparkly with rings, like my white lilies when the dew's on em. And look at my great black stumpin' hands. Now, don't you think that the Lord must have meant me to make the pie-crust, and you to stay in the parlor? Dar, I was just so sarcy, Mas George. And what did Mother say? said George. Say? Why, she kinder larfed in her eyes, them great handsome eyes o' hern. Oh, and says she, Well, Aunt Chloe, I think you are about in the right on it, says she, and she went off in the parlor. She ought to cracked me over the head for being so sarcy, but thar's war it is. I can't do nothing with ladies in the kitchen. Well, you made out well with that dinner. I remember everybody said so, said George. Didn't I? And want I behind the dining room door dat berry day? And didn't I see the general pass his plate three times for some more dat berry pie? And says he, you must have an uncommon cook, Mrs. Shelby. Lord, I was fit to split myself. And the general, he knows what cooking is, said Aunt Chloe, drawing herself up with an air. Very nice man, the general. He comes of one of the very fustest families in old Virginia. He knows what's what now, as well as I do, the general. You see, there's pants in all pies, Master George, but tain't everybody knows what they is, or as order be. But the general, he knows. I knew by his marks he made. Yes, he knows what the pints is." By this time Master George had arrived at that pass to which even a boy can come, under uncommon circumstances, when he really could not eat another morsel. And, therefore, he was at leisure to notice the pile of woolly heads and glistening eyes which were regarding their operations hungrily from the opposite corner. "'Here you, Mose, Pete,' he said, breaking off liberal bits, and throwing it at them. "'You want some, don't you? Come, Aunt Chloe, bake them some cakes.' And George and Tom moved to a comfortable seat in the chimney-corner, while Aunt Chloe, after baking a goodly pile of cakes, took her baby on her lap, and began alternately filling its mouth and her own, and distributing to Mose and Pete, 
who seemed rather to prefer eating theirs as they rolled about on the floor under the table, tickling each other, and occasionally pulling the baby's toes. "'Oh, go long, will ye?' said the mother, giving now and then a kick, in a kind of a general way, under the table, when the movement became too obstreperous. "'Can't ye be decent when white folks comes to see ye? Stop dat ar now, will ye? Better mind yourselves, or I'll take ye down a buttonhole lower when Massa George is gone.' What meaning was couched under this terrible threat, it is difficult to say, but certain it is that its awful indistinctness seemed to produce very little impression on the young sinners addressed. "'Law, now,' said Uncle Tom, "'they are so full of tickle all the while. They can't behave themselves.' Here the boys emerged from under the table, and, with hands and faces well plastered with molasses, began a vigorous kissing of the baby. "'Get along with you,' said the mother, pushing away their woolly heads. You'll all stick together and never get clar if you do that fashion. Go along to spring and wash yourselves, she said, seconding her exhortations with a slap which resounded very formidably, but which seemed only to knock out so much more laugh from the young ones as they tumbled precipitately over each other out the doors, where they fairly screamed with merriment. Did you ever see such aggravating young uns? said Aunt Chloe, rather complacently, as producing an old towel kept for such emergencies, she poured a little water out of the cracked teapot on it, and began rubbing off the molasses from the baby's face and hands. And, having polished her till she shone, she set her down in Tom's lap, while she busied herself in clearing away supper. The baby employed the intervals in pulling Tom's nose, scratching his face, and burying her fat hands in his woolly hair, which last operation seemed to afford her special content. "'Ain't she a pert young un?' said Tom, holding her from him to take a full-length view. Then, getting up, he set her on his broad shoulder, and began capering and dancing with her, while Master George snapped at her with his pocket-handkerchief, and Mose and Pete, now returned again, roared after her like bears, till Aunt Chloe declared that they fairly took her head off with their noise. As, according to her own statement, this surgical operation was a matter of daily occurrence in the cabin, the declaration no whit abated the merriment, till every one had roared and tumbled and danced themselves down to a state of composure. "'Well, now, I hopes you're done,' said Aunt Chloe, who had been busy in pulling out a rude box of a trundle-bed. "'And now you and Mose and Pete get into thar, for we's going to have the meetin'. "'Oh, mother, we don't want her. We wants to sit up to meetin'. Meetin' is so curious. We likes him. "'Lie, Aunt Chloe, shove it under, and let him sit up,' said Master George, decisively, giving a push to the rude machine. Aunt Chloe, having thus saved appearances, seemed highly delighted to push the thing under, saying, as she did so, "'Well, maybe twill do him some good.' The house now resolved itself into a committee of the whole, to consider the accommodations and arrangements for the meeting. "'What we's to do for cheers now, I declare I don't know,' said Aunt Chloe. As the meeting had been held at Uncle Tom's Weekly, for an indefinite length of time, without any more cheers, there seemed some encouragement to hope that a way would be discovered at present. "'Old Uncle Peter sung both de legs out of dat oldest cheer last week,' suggested Mose. "'You go long. I'll bound you pulled him out. Some of your shines,' said Aunt Chloe. "'Well, it'll stand, if it only keeps jam up against the wall,' said Mose. Then Uncle Peter mustn't sit in it, cause he allus hitches when he gets a singin'. He hitched pretty nigh across the room t'other night," said Pete. "Good Lord, get him in it then," said Mose. And then he'd begin, "Come saints and sinners, hear me tell," and then down he'd go. 
and Mose imitated precisely the nasal tones of the old man tumbling on the floor to illustrate the supposed catastrophe. "'Come now, be decent, can't you?' said Aunt Chloe. "'Ain't you ashamed?' Master George, however, joined the offender in the laugh, and declared decidedly that Mose was a buster, so the maternal admonition seemed rather to fail of effect. "'Well, old man,' said Aunt Chloe, "'you'll have to tote in them our barrels.' "'Mother's barrels is like that our widders, Master George was reading about in de good book, Day never fails,' said Mose, aside to Peter. "'I'm sure one of them caved in last week,' said Pete, "'and let em all down in the middle o' dat singin' dat ar was failin', warn't it?' During this aside between Mose and Pete, two empty casks had been rolled into the cabin, and being secured from rolling by stones on each side, boards were laid across them which arrangement, together with the turning down of certain tubs and pails, and the disposing of the rickety chairs, at last completed the preparation. "'Master George is such a beautiful reader now. I know he'll stay to read for us,' said Aunt Chloe. "'Pears like twill be so much more interesting.' George very readily consented, for your boy is always ready for anything that makes him of importance. The room was soon filled with a motley assemblage, from the old gray-headed patriarch of eighty, to the young girl and lad of fifteen. A little harmless gossip ensued on various themes, such as where old Aunt Sally got her new red headkerchief, and how Mrs. was going to give Lizzie that spotted muslin gown when she got her new barrage made up, and how Mrs. Shelby was thinking of buying a new sorrel colt that was going to prove an addition to the glories of the place. A few of the worshippers belonged to families hard by, who had got permission to attend and who brought in various choice scraps of information about the sayings and doings at the house and on the place, which circulated as freely as the same sort of small change does in higher circles. After a while the singing commenced, to the evident delight of all present. Not even all the disadvantage of nasal intonation could prevent the effect of the naturally fine voices in airs at once wild and spirited. The words were sometimes the well-known and common hymns sung in the churches about, and sometimes of a wilder, more indefinite character, picked up at camp-meetings. The chorus of one of them, which ran as follows, was sung with great energy and unction. Die on the field of battle, die on the field of battle, glory in my soul. Another special favorite had oft repeated the words, Oh, I'm going to glory, won't you come along with me? Don't you see the angels beckoning and calling me away? Don't you see the golden city and the everlasting day? There were others, which made incessant mention of Jordan's banks, and Canaan's fields, and the new Jerusalem, for the negro mind, impassioned and imaginative, always attaches itself to hymns and expressions of a vivid and pictorial nature. And as they sung, some laughed, and some cried, and some clapped hands, or shook hands rejoicingly with each other, as if they had fairly gained the other side of the river. Various exhortations, or relations of experience, followed, and intermingled with the singing. One old gray-headed woman, long past work, but much revered as a sort of chronicle of the past, rose, and leaning on her staff, said, "'Well, chillin, well, I'm mighty glad to hear y'all, and see y'all once more, cause I don't know when I'll be gone to glory. But I've done got ready, chillin. Pears like I'd got my little bundle all tied up and my bonnet on, just a-waitin' for the stage to come long and take me home. Sometimes in the night 
I think I hear the wheels a-rattling, and I'm looking out all the time. Now you just be ready, too, for I tell you all, chillin', she said, striking her staff hard on the floor, dat our glory is a mighty thing. It's a mighty thing, chillin'. You don't know nothing about it. It's wonderful. And the old creature sat down, with streaming tears, as wholly overcome, while the whole circle struck up, O oh, Canaan, bright Canaan, I'm bound for the land of Canaan. Massa George, by request, read the last chapters of Revelation, often interrupted by such exclamations as, The sakes now! Only hear that! Just think, aunt! Is all that a-comin' sure enough? George, who was a bright boy, and well-trained in religious things by his mother, finding himself an object of general admiration, threw in expositions of his own from time to time, with a commendable seriousness and gravity, for which he was admired by the young and blessed by the old, and it was agreed, on all hands, that a minister couldn't lay it off better than he did. That was really amazing. Uncle Tom was a sort of patriarch in religious matters in the neighborhood having naturally an organization in which the morale was strongly predominant, together with a greater breadth and cultivation of mind than obtained among his companions, he was looked up to with great respect as a sort of minister among them. And the simple, hearty, sincere style of his exhortations might have edified even better educated persons. But it was in prayer that he especially excelled. Nothing could exceed the touching simplicity the childlike earnestness of his prayer, enriched with the language of Scripture, which seemed so entirely to have wrought itself into his being as to have become a part of himself, and to drop from his lips unconsciously. In the language of a pious old negro he prayed right up, and so much did his prayer always work on the devotional feelings of his audiences, that there seemed often a danger that it would be lost altogether in the abundance of the responses which broke out everywhere around him. While this scene was passing in the cabin of the man, one quite otherwise passed in the halls of the master. The trader and Mr. Shelby were seated together in the dining-room aforenamed, at a table covered with papers and writing utensils. Mr. Shelby was busy in counting some bundles of bills, which, as they were counted, he pushed over to the trader, who counted them likewise. "'All fair,' said the trader, "'and now for signing these er." Mr. Shelby hastily drew the bills of sale toward him, and signed them, like a man that hurries over some disagreeable business, and then pushed them over with the money. Haley produced from a well-worn valise a parchment, which, after looking over it a moment, he handed to Mr. Shelby, who took it with a gesture of suppressed eagerness. "'Well, now, the thing's done,' said the trader, getting up. "'It's done,' said Mr. Shelby, in a musing tone, and fetching a long breath, repeated, it's done. "'You don't seem to feel much pleased with it, appears to me,' said the trader. "'Haley,' said Mr. Shelby, "'I hope you'll remember that you promised on your honor you wouldn't sell Tom without knowing what sort of hands he's going into.' "'Why, you's just done it, sir,' said the trader. "'Circumstances, you well know, obliged me,' said Shelby haughtily. "'Well, you know, they may oblige me, too,' said the trader. Howsomever, I'll do the very best I can in getting Tom a good berth. As to my treatin' on him bad, you needn't be a grain feared. If there's anything that I thank the Lord for, it is that I'm never no ways cruel." After the expositions which the trader had previously given of his humane principles, 
Mr. Shelby did not feel particularly reassured by these declarations. But as they were the best comfort the case admitted of, he allowed the trader to depart in silence, and betook himself to a solitary cigar. End of chapter 4